Coming to you from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, the city of brotherly love and sisterly affection, I'm Lisa Sharon Harper, president of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. Welcome to the Freedom Road podcast. Now, each episode, we speak with national faith leaders, advocates, and activists to have the kinds of conversations that we normally have on the front lines. It's just that this time, we've got microphones in our faces and you are listening in. In this episode, we are joined by Rabbi Sharon Brous. In 2013, Rabbi Brous was listed as America's number one, somebody say number one, uh, most influential rabbi. What? What? Her 2016 TED Talk, It's Time to Reclaim Religion, has been viewed 1.5 million times. Somebody say 1.5 million. Thank you and is utterly inspiring, which is the reason why it's been viewed 1.5 million times. And at 30 years old, Rabbi Brous founded Ikar back in 2004. And Ikar is a spiritual community in Los Angeles that has become a magnet for Los Angeles's unaffiliated Jewish population. And Rabbi Brous has joined us on Freedom Road podcast before, when she and Trua President Rabbi Jill Jacobs helped us to understand anti-Semitism. What is it? Where does it come from? How does this? How do we know when it's in the room? It was an amazing conversation, um, and it's one that I refer back to often um, for my even just to check my own self. Right. So I invited Rabbi Browse to join us on Freedom Road today because of her new book. She has a new book out um, that's coming out really soon called The Amen Effect which I was like, what? Okay. So, okay. She messing up in here. The amen effect. That's what I remember like, you know, up in church, but she's like rabbi talking amen. But of course, amen is he, okay. You know what I mean? (laughs) It has those roots. And so it's called the amen effect, ancient wisdom to mend our broken hearts and world. And it has something to offer us as we step into what is projected to be one of the most, if not the most tumultuous election year in American history. Rabbi Brous is also my friend and watching her sermon at Ikar online broke my heart and helped me to connect with the pain reverberating through the Jewish community in the days directly following October 7th. I've watched her wrestle with the tensions of Zionism and confront the slaughter of Palestinian people happening in Gaza and the West Bank with clear-headed honesty. And I wanna hear her wisdom concerning the future of Israel and Palestine. So we would love to hear your thoughts. Tweet or insta me at Lisa S. Harper or to Freedom Road at Freedom Road Us and keep sharing the podcast with your friends and networks and letting us know what you think. Okay, so Rabbi Rabbi Sharon, Rabbi Browse, how would you like for me first to refer to you? I have good home training and I need to ask for permission to either call you Rabbi Sharon, Rabbi Browse, or Sharon. How would what would you prefer? Well, we've been friends for 15 years now, so I think Sharon is just. <laughs> Did I earn really it yet? It's really good to be with you. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> you earned it. <laughs> well, you know, you never know how people are. You know, when you get in public. So, thank you, Sharon. I appreciate that. That really means a lot to me. So, my first, my first thought, how, where I want to kind of enter this conversation is that over the last few months. I've often, like I said, thought back to our last conversation on Freedom Road. And in that conversation, you talked about the cycles of violence that befall Jewish people um, over centuries, but but all, it just seems to always come back around. And I think that 
you know, you said that Jews around the world keep their passports in their on their persons, knowing that there might be a need to escape to Israel, and where that's considered their only safe place. And so, Sharon, I just want to ask you, in this moment, um, where we are actually experiencing a um, an incredible rise in anti-Semitism and also the tensions of very real injustice that are happening on the land in Palestine. How are you holding yourself in these Mm. times? It's been a really hard couple of months Mm -hmm. Um, on many fronts. First, there's the initial impact of the shock and anguish and sorrow of the atrocities committed on October 7th against mm-hmm. uh, the Jewish people, against, um, against the state of Israel. And, um, y- you know, it was, it was, it became clear very quickly that these were, this was the worst day in Jewish history since the Holocaust, that mm-hmm. these were Holocaust level atrocities. And there's an incredible trauma that that taps into. And something that you and I have talked about, you know, over the years is I think one of the things that's very confusing for people about anti-Semitism and about the Jews in general is that we carry a kind of psychic uh, pain with us that comes from multi-generational trauma and this historical experience that essentially wherever we've lived throughout history, we were mm-hmm. ultimately persecuted, exiled, or genocided from that land. And so that's built into the psyche of, of a Jew, regardless of whether you're a Jew from Eastern European background or a Jew from North Africa and from the Middle East. And mm-hmm. that's a, that's an experience that, uh, that many Jews share, and it's a subconscious experience. And October 7th immediately resurfaced that trauma, that sense mm-hmm. that we are not safe. It was compounded by the fact that the atrocities happened in Israel, which part of the raison d'etre of the state of Israel was there should be a place in the world where Jews can be safe from these kinds of terrible acts of violence. Mm -hmm. So there's that trauma. Then there's the trauma of, um, of the Israel's retaliation, um, against, against Hamas in Gaza and Mm -hmm. just this massive toll of the war and witnessing this profound human suffering that is hard for anybody to bear witness to. And it's very, it's very painful. It's just a painful time to be, um, to be alive and to witness this day after day. Add to that the, the, the pain of the rise in anti-Semitism and right. the, the, the movement from what now appears to have been a, re- a truly latent anti-Semitism in the United States and around the world, which became overt almost instantly. I mean, there were protests Mm. on October 8th where people, thousands of people were in the streets screaming, gas the Jews. This happened immediately. That was in Sydney, Australia, right outside of the Opera House. And then it happened in New York City that we started seeing swastikas appearing at these protests. And then around the rest of campuses and around around the country and around the world. Now, so, but, I, but I'm sorry, I just, I just want to, yes, but I want to just interrupt for a minute to ask, can you clarify, because some people could take what you're saying to say, to protest what the state of Israel is doing is to be anti-Semitic. No, or no, no. Are, Yeah, just can you clarify that? Yeah, of course. I mean, there's a big question right now over whether 
anti-Zionism equals anti-Semitism. One mm -hmm. thing that's very clear is that protesting the actions of Israel's government and the policies of Israel's government is not is not necessarily anti-Semitic. There are a lot of anti-Semites who protest mm -hmm. against the state of Israel. Right, yeah. But the act of protesting is something I've been actively involved in for the last three decades. And that's not an anti-Semitic act. That's actually an act of love. That's an act of, I, I believe there, as I do here in America, that our responsibility is to hold the state to its own greatest aspirations of building a just and equal and dignified reality for all of its inhabitants. Mm. So there's a conflation that often happens between criticism of Israel's government and anti-Semitism, and that is a that's that is a false equation. Um, and at the same time, it is undeniable that there's been an extraordinary revelation of anti-Semitic of anti attitudes within many of the protests against Israel in this moment. And that's something that needs to be reckoned with and something that frankly, is it's, it's hard for me to understand why I don't hear more voices from within the pro-Palestine movement that are speaking out against that because that not only endangers Jews and, and Jewish lives, but that endangers also the quest for Palestinian liberation. It does not mm -hmm. make Palestinians more free when there's real anti-Semitism in that movement. Um, and I have always felt and will continue to believe that there is no liberation that's not a shared liberation, that we cannot have a people be free while other people remain oppressed. Mm -hmm. And this is, this is why I believe we have to actually be really looking out for and protecting one another and making sure that, especially in moments of great vulnerability, that we're very cognizant of the the dynamic of the dynamics of our movement so that we can constantly reaffirm human dignity and the need for all of us to journey toward liberation together. Amen. And that gets me to your book. <laughs> How's that for a segue? I mean, it's, it's, it's actually, let me just say, I mean, I really do say amen to that because I think what I hear you saying is I hear you um, being very, very clear about what we need to condemn is actions that are unjust against the image of God on earth. And, but not the image of God, the image of God, the inherent human dignity that lies within every single human being on earth needs to be protected in all in order to protect all. Is that what I hear you saying? Yeah, that that's absolutely right. And I think one of the ways that racism works in, gener in general, and one of the ways that anti-Semitism works is that any individual is held responsible for, for that all individuals are of this of this particular group are held responsible for any action of any individual who's also part of that group. That's right. I recognize that as a trope of uh, you know of the way that racism functions in a society, and mm. so holding a college student at Cornell responsible for the behavior of Israel's hardline ultra nationalist messianic government because that student is Jewish is racism. I mean that's that right. that is that's anti-Semitic. And so right. that's not pro-Palestine and that's not even anti-Israel. That's anti-Semitic. And so I think we have to get clear on what's actually happening in these spaces. And so calling for justice for Palestinians is an essential human call that I have been sounding as loudly and powerfully as I can from my pulpit for, you know, for two decades. And mm. that is a just call. 
and um, and and getting confusing that just call with with a, a kind of toxic anti-Semitism only endangers the call. It, it doesn't just endanger me and my family, which I am concerned about our safety here mm-hmm. um, in this place now. Mm-hmm. But it also endangers the critical work that needs to happen in the days ahead in order for that just society to be built. I love it. And I love your vision of liberation for all. That's actually really powerful. And I love hearing it come from your mouth. Thank you for that. I want you to kind of now move with us into your book. I mean, first of all, how did this book come to be? I mean, what's the story behind the making of the, of the Amen Effect? Why now? What was it that inspired you to write this now? Well, first, I'll just say that I closed this manuscript over a year ago, and wow. when I went in to read the audiobook in November um, of 2023, I was a little bit nervous because the world has changed, and I really I felt mm. that I wrote the book for a different era. Mm. And as I went into the studio to read, I realized that the book speaks more to this time than it did to the time I wrote it in. Wow! And so, I, and I'll and I'll explain why. So. The central paradigm of the book is a Mishnah, this ancient Jewish text um, that was that codified around the year 220 CE. So the Mishnah is a code of law, mm-hmm. um, and this comes from a particular section of that code of law that was dedicated to the architectural layout of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Okay. And it describes a particular ritual, the, um, the ritual of the pilgrimage to Jerusalem, when the people used to come, Jews would come from all over the land and from the diaspora, and they would make their way, ascend to Jerusalem, go into the ritual bath, and then ascend the steps. They would walk under this arched entryway into the grand courtyard of the Temple Mount. Wow. And they, hundreds of thousands of them at once, would turn to the right, And they would circle around the perimeter of the courtyard of the temple and they would exit essentially in the same place where they had entered. So imagine hundreds of thousands of people, massive people moving. I always envision the Hajj. It's the way that I think in in current times about what it means to have that kind of mass movement. Wow. Except the text says for somebody whose heart is broken and those people would still ascend to Jerusalem, ascend the steps and walk through the same entryway, but they would turn to the left instead of the right. And every single person who would walk by them would have to stop and look into their eyes and say two simple words, ma'lach, what happened to you? What, tell me your story. And the person who's brokenhearted, I know, right? And the person who's brokenhearted would answer saying, I am a mourner, my father just died or my child is sick, or I found a lump, or I just feel so alone in this world. And the people who are walking from right to left would not be allowed to go on in their journey until they give this person a blessing. And that's it. And I oh found my this God. I found this by accident um, 25 years ago when I was in rabbinical school. I remember sitting with it. I was looking for something else. I came across this text. and. I remember thinking, I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand. What is this text trying to say to us? I photocopied the page. I folded it up. I put it back in my book on the shelf. Then I came out to Los Angeles and we built this beautiful community, Ikar. Mm. Lots of people died. Lots of people were born. Mm-hmm. People got married. People got divorced. The world was on fire. There were wars. There was, I mean, life happened. 
And then one day I pulled the book off the shelf and this piece of paper fell out and I saw it and I thought, oh my God, I know exactly what this text means. What? Now I understand it, right? Like oh my now God. I understand that the, the like incredibly profound psychological and spiritual insight that the rabbis had where they said, when we're broken, when our hearts are broken, we, our greatest instinct is to retreat from the world That's because right. we don't want to show up in our vulnerability. We retreat from the world, which only compounds our pain with loneliness and we add pain to pain, but we have to show up, but we can't show up and pretend that we're like everybody else because we're not like everybody else. Our hearts are broken. So we have to show up, but be, but be honest about where the pain is. And when we're okay, and we're on we're on a mission. I'm on my spiritual mission. We might save and you know save up our entire lives for the chance to go on this pilgrimage, mm -hmm. to go. And we're walking from right to left. The last thing in the world we want to do is lift our gaze and see this broken person coming toward me and distract mm -hmm. ourselves from our mission, which is to circle this courtyard, mm -hmm. in order to stop long enough and say, "Hey, friend, what happened to you? Are you okay? Tell me your story. Tell me where your pain comes from." And yet that's, that is our holy work. There's nothing else that's it. but that. That's yes. it. And so, and so I recognized wow. in this moment that this was this essentially the fact, the founding principle of our community, which is we have to learn how to be honest about our pain and how to hold each other in our pain, how to say amen or amen when somebody stands up in the room and says, my heart is broken. Oh and God. we say, Amen, amen, amen. We say, I can't take your pain away. I can't make it so that it didn't happen, but I can see you in your pain. I can sit with you in your pain. I can cry with you through the night. And when you're ready to take a step, I will be here by your side to walk with you. And that I feel is the whole essence of what we're called to be as human beings. And really the most, the most profound gift that we could actually offer one another. Oh my gosh, y'all, I'm literally crying right now. I mean, I actually have a red nose. <laughs> I'm literally, I'm, you have hit core here. Um, and let me just say that the work that I've been doing, interestingly, in the biblical con like concept of shalom, which is a Hebrew concept, what yes. I've landed on, and you and I had this conversation actually on an airplane. An airplane. Like, <laughs> how many, like five or six years ago. Um, where it's it's become even more clear to me actually in those since that time that the whole point of shalom what shalom is is radical connectedness mm -hmm. that's mm -hmm. what it is that's what it is that's what we were created for and so to know that there was this wow yeah and this and this practice text, i will say i mean this is a this text has been buried. This is a pretty obscure text that again, I came across it by accident and thank God I saved it. I, you know, sort of sensed, I had this mysterious sense that it meant something that I couldn't understand at that time. Wow. And when I said earlier that, that I read that I wrote the book in a different moment. Mm -hmm. So I, my father died in August, my beloved father, Rick Rouse, mm -hmm. his name was Shalom Ben Khan of Aleib. Um, Shalom is his name. And, um, wow. and you know, the, 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 the basic read of this text is that everybody's walking this way, but the mourner is walking this way. And I spent my whole life walking to the right and essentially taking care of people who are grieving. 
mm. and who had experienced loss. That's what we do. I bury people, mm. you know, and, and I give eulogies and I mm. walk with people in the and sit in the house of mourning. And then all of a sudden, you know, come end of August, right before High Holy Days, I'm the mourner. And I have to, I have to let people hold me Oh wow! and I have to be cared for. And I realized as I was, you know, as I've been contemplating this paradigm that it actually, I wrote it as a person walking from right to left. I'm reading it now as a person walking from left to right. Wow! I wrote this as a, you know, as a, as a Jew in America, in a position of relative security, safety, comfort, and privilege. A Jew in a in a white passing body in America. Mm-hmm. I read I read the book now. I you know in November December 2023 as a person who feels incredibly vulnerable and not safe for myself, and for my family here, for my kid in college, you know, for my for my kids who you know walk out of a, a Jewish school every day and wonder they f- actually fear for their safety, and so I you know and and actually the paradigm holds up from from both directions and part of the power of what the rabbis understood when they wrote this so many years ago is that every one of us at different times is walking from right to left and will also walk from left to right. And that's part of the sacred covenant of community that we understand that we stop our own journey to notice the one in pain because it will be me tomorrow. And when we're in pain, we allow ourselves to be held because we know that tomorrow, maybe I'll have the strength to hold you. These are our stories. You're listening to the Freedom Road podcast, where we bring you stories from the front lines of the struggle for justice. I want to ask you, can you distill the amen effect into like a paragraph? What is the amen effect? Yeah. So the idea is that human beings are biologically and psychologically and spiritually hardwired for connection with one another, Mm. that we need to be seen, that this is one of the most universal human experiences. And this ancient concept of amen or amen or amin that that appears in so many of our sacred traditions Mm -hmm. is a powerful, sacred expression of, I see you, I see you in your pain, in your joy, in your fear, in your concern, in your yearning, I see you. Hmm. And I have been so moved by the universality of this human need and by the power of human connection to help us actually survive some of the most difficult human experiences. Hmm. Again, not pretending that we can take one another's pain away, but simply sitting with one another in grief as a way of, 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 of expressing the, the, inherent, the, the inherent power of, of, of our humanity mm. and reaffirming that, especially in the darkest moments. So my one sentence is, in a time of an epidemic of loneliness, social alienation, isolation, and extreme polarization and division and ideological extremism, we must find our way to one another in sorrow, in celebration, and in solidarity. Amen. 
<laughs> I can't help it. That's my Christian coming out, right? Like my 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 hallelujah, yes, 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 amen coming out. So I love the structure of this book. It reads like a devotional, actually. I mean, it really, truly, somebody could read through this book and just take a chapter a week and just reflect on it and then go to the next. To I, in fact, that's how I read this book. <laughs> it, it's clear that you are writing um, from a grounded faith, from a faith that's not one that is not, it's like disconnected um, and it's it's born out of precepts that are kind of conceived in the mind, not actually connected to reality and then applied to our lived life. That's called systematic theology. It's what we study um, you know, in the Christian theology or it's really what dominated Christian theology pretty much from the enlightenment era forward. Um, it's now being um, challenged in a major way by what I think you are exercising in, in your rabbinical work. Um, it's grounded, rooted, contextual theology. And I can see that. It's, it's very clear. So I want to ask you, as you were writing you know, this, this work, was there a basic guiding truth that kind of shaped how you engaged each chapter? What was your basic guiding theological principle or experience or truth that you've under, you've gained to understand that it helped shape how you engage all of these different chapters? So the first is what I speak about in, I believe it's in chapter two, about mm. all human beings being created in God's own image, right. which is something you and I have also spoken about mm -hmm. over the years. Mm -hmm. And this is the first thing that we learn about human beings in the beginning of the book of, of Genesis. And our rabbis take this idea and really extrapolate on it to try to understand what it fundamentally means to live a reality that is informed by that theology. Mm. And so in uh, another Mishnah, uh, another one of these ancient rabbinic discourses, um, the rabbis say, that the fact that God started with only one human being, Adam Harishon, the first person, and that that being was created in God's own image means that every single human being is endowed with innate dignity that manifests in three different ways. One is infinite or inestimable worth. This is a language that one of my teachers, Rabbi Yitz Greenberg, a great teacher of Torah of our time, mm. um, has developed around this, that every person has infinite worth. This is that famous um, Talmudic and also Quranic teaching that if you destroy a single life, it's as if you've destroyed a world. And if you save a single life, it's as if you've saved a whole world because every single person has infinite worth and value. We have no idea what ideas that person will put into the world, what impact that person will have, mm. that there's some way in which any interaction that they have could set off a chain of events that could end up redeeming the world. So every single person has infinite worth, that every single person is fundamentally equal to everyone else because we all came from the same one. We have the same, the text says, heavenly God, the same heavenly God, and we have the same ancestor, which That's is right. Adam Harishon. And and the rabbis write this. It's really, you know, as my as Rabbi you know Greenberg shares, this is the fundamental incompatibility of religion and racism. You call yourself religious, you can't be a racist because to be a religious person means to hold that to hold true to this idea that every single person 
is fundamentally is fundamentally in the image of God and that we all come from the same. Mm -hmm. So we might look different, we might speak differently, we might vote differently, but we are all fundamentally equal. And the third of these dignities is the idea that every single person has a unique contribution to make to the world, wow. that every one of us is unique and that the world was in fact created for your sake and for my sake and mm. for each one of our sake. And our job is to build a human community that actually affirms that every human being has infinite worth, is fundamentally equal to everyone else and has some unique contribution to make in the world. And that is, I think, the great challenge of uh, mm -hmm. the great theological challenge that, that my faith tradition puts before us. Mm -hmm. If you believe fundamentally these ideas, mm -hmm. how are you manifesting them in the world? How does that impact the way that you build policies in your school or in your synagogue or in wow. your church? How does that inform the way that you engage people on the street, people you disagree with, people in your own family, which might be even the hardest yes. um, to, you know, <laughs> to hold off in. And so how, what does it mean to live through the lens of mm -hmm. these, these um, innate dignities that every one of us has simply by virtue of being created in the image of God? And here mm -hmm. I'll lift up the name of another one of my, my teachers and friends, Rabbi Shai Held, who has a beautiful book coming out in May, mm -hmm. speaking specifically to this idea that, that with love we were brought into the world, with love we must manifest our quest for human dignity. And that is the driving force of my, of my rabbinate and of my community and of the book. And so while the central paradigm is this, this ancient uh, you know, pilgrimage ritual and what it means to look at, at one another and be seen by one another in, mm -hmm. our, in our pain and anguish and grief, mm -hmm. It's rooted in the idea that every single one of us deserves to be loved, mm -hmm. deserves to be held, and, and, and that each of us has the capacity to offer that love, especially when it's needed most. Yeah. Wow. Amen. Oh, that's going to get old real quick. <laughs> <laughs> it's not old yet. It's been years. Yeah, that's actually true. <laughs> I have a few more years left on here um, to say it. So, so can you tell us about showing up? It's actually one of your first chapters in the book. What does it mean to show up? Yeah, I mean, this is, I think that um, this is one of the great lessons um, that I have learned as a pastor, as a, as a rabbi, mm -hmm. um, that when someone is hurting, I think that we who are walking from right to left, we who are okay in that moment, have many reasons why we don't want to show up and be present for someone else's pain. Um, first among them, people's vulnerability awakens our own vulnerability. And so when we, when we encounter someone who's experienced a real loss, getting close to that loss awakens me to how vulnerable I am to a similar loss. We mm. see this especially and most tragically when people lose children, mm. because there's this sense of like loss is contagious. And if I get too close to you right now, I realize that I could also lose my own children because we all live in this myth of, you know, kind of eternal life. And the fact is we're all vulnerable because in an instant, any one of our lives can change. But it's not only with the loss of children. We believe that divorce is contagious. We believe that, you know, that that non-commutable disease is actually contagious, that if I get close to you in your illness, I too might not live forever. And so we tend as humans to kind of avoid people who are in pain when those, precisely at the moment, 
moments that people need us the most, need our presence the most. Mm -hmm. We also, I, I believe, we're, even with the best intentions, we're afraid that we're not wanted in those spaces, that we're invading people's privacy, that we are overstepping boundaries. So there are all kinds of reasons that. that that, that's, one of, that, that's, well, I, that, yeah. that's one of the one of the apprehensions that I I confront in myself when I'm confronted with the ones who are walking to the left, right? Absolutely. Right. That I'm not maybe really you don't in want that me. Space. Maybe yeah. you don't want me here, you know. And maybe maybe if I ask you, Malach, what happened to you? You might be fine that day, but then you're going to be triggered into remembering your pain, and then I'm going to be causing you more pain. Mm. So we, for lots of reasons, some good reasons and some, you know, kind of subconscious, just they're really there, but they're not, they're not really rational. Mm -hmm. um, we pull away from people who are hurting. And in fact, our responsibility as human beings to one another is to step toward the pain, not to step away from it. Mm -hmm. And, and so, and I've seen this in, in, in a thousand ways as a rabbi of a community, I've seen what happens when we step into grief with one another, I'll tell you literally last night, um, I was at a Shiva minion. We do these gatherings in people's homes during Shiva. Shiva is um, the number seven in Hebrew. Mm -hmm. And we have seven days of the most intense uh, grief after a burial. Wow. And so I was in one of these we, where we where the community crowds into someone's home. We take care of all of the food so that the person who's mourning doesn't have to think about anything. We give them the space to say the mourner's Kaddish, which I'll say more about in a yeah. moment. Yeah. And we really give them a container to hold their grief, a sacred human container. And they, we laugh, we cry, we share stories, we share pictures. Anyway, last night I was, um, I was officiating a Shiva minion for somebody whose mother had died. And we were in the middle of the service and, um, and a person walked in the room who literally had just gotten up from her own Shiva that morning. Her, her mother had also died and she was grieving for seven days. Hers ended that morning. She got up. She lives an hour away. She drove and her first act now out of this most intense period of mourning was going to sit with somebody else to help wow. create the space for them. So when we do this as human beings, when we actually step toward the pain instead of fleeing, we are affirming each other's humanity in a very powerful way. Mm. And that is one of the great lessons. So I have in each book, um, in each chapter, I have a spiritual practice that I associate with um, with the learning of each of, of each chapter. Mm. And so the spiritual practice of chapter one, which is called showing up, is go to the funeral because we all have this experience where we've got a busy pack day, we have tons of meetings, someone dies, and we think, oh my God, do I go to the funeral? I'm not that close with the person who died or the person who lost someone. There are gonna be hundreds of people there. Will it even make a difference? And is it presumptuous for me to show up? Because maybe they'll think, why are you even here? Mm. And we've all had the experience where we've experienced loss and people who should have shown up haven't. Mm. And we feel like in addition to the anguish and the sorrow, the loneliness of feeling mm. like we have to navigate our grief alone. So the the rule here is- And we were not, sorry, I just need to say, and yeah. we were not created to navigate our grief That's alone. right. That's right. We were not That's created right. for that. That's such a great point, keep going. So my grandma's rule, my grandma Millie had this rule, which is you just, you show up. You mm -hmm. just show up and let someone say to you, okay, I need a little bit of a break right now. <laughs> let them say that to you. But we show, we show up and sh my grandma's rule was 
you show up for the simcha, you show up for the joyous moment, and you show up for the pain, both. You just show up. And so, like, don't, don't come back. But push, but push toward relationship, push toward connection. Mm-hmm. And so I understand this now to be the, the, the way I think of the rule is err on the side of presence, Ooh. err on the side of presence, right? Just show up and maybe, maybe, yes. yeah, you, it might be that somebody says, okay, I have enough oh. bagels and enough friends here and enough people who are holding me right now. I want a little right. peace and quiet. Then you can step back. Right. But, but err on the side of presence. Yeah. Yes. And amen. Oh, sorry. I can't help it. Keep going. I can't help it. <laughs> I, you know, I also, I want to also share something because you keep saying that, that we're, we're not designed to navigate these moments alone. Yeah. And I want to, I want to just share one, one very powerful ancient text that speaks to that, that I share in the book as well. There's a, a midrash, um, a story that the rabbis told about Adam and Eve, that first night of creation. So they were created on the sixth day of creation. Right. And at the end of the day, the sun started to set, but they'd never seen sunset before. They'd never seen darkness before. And Adam started to freak out and <laughs> because he'd never seen darkness. And he thought, oh my God, the world is ending. Is it something I did? Is it my fault? Why is it getting so dark? And then it got darker and darker and darker and he's weeping and he's wailing and he's screaming saying, please don't let the world end. I mean, imagine if you experienced real darkness for the first time. And the Midrash says that Eve, his partner, simply comes and sits down across from him and holds him throughout the night until the break of dawn when the light starts to rise up again. And it's such a powerful expression of solidarity in times of darkness. Eve couldn't make the darkness go away, but she, but she was willing to sit with him and just sit across from him and be with him in the struggle until a bright new dawn emerged and I think that that is so much the essence of what we can offer one another as human beings, mm. just sacred presence through the, through the hardest chapters. Can you also tell us a little bit about holding on? Because that, that, that story with Eve and Adam and that from the Midrash, I mean, she held on to him and you have a chapter about holding on. Can you tell us about that? What do you mean by holding on? Yeah, we, as a community have experienced waves of sorrow as various crises, personal and communal and global have hit us just as every community has. Mm -hmm. And what we realized is that there's such a profound problem with loneliness in our society, something that Mm -hmm. Dr. Vivek Murthy has been writing and speaking about so prophetically and powerfully over these years. Mm -hmm. I started to research loneliness a little over a decade ago when I read an incredible book by Dr. John Cacioppo on loneliness that, that revealed that, that loneliness not only hurts our hearts, in a kind of metaphysical way, but actually hurts our hearts in a physical way, that there's a physical pain that comes with loneliness, that we fundamentally need each other. But the irony of loneliness is that when when we experience physical pain, it's really a message from our bodies to our brains saying, you're in danger, address the danger before this gets worse. So hand on the stove, 
you know, this is, if I keep my hand here, I won't right. get burned. Right. So we pull away. And when we experience loneliness, we also pull away. Hmm. But the irony is that when we're lonely, we need to step closer, not hmm. further away, mm -hmm. because we're only compounding the pain when we pull further away. Hmm. And so the, the, what we've discovered through these moments of crisis, individual and global, is that we have to create a, a kind of culture of, of stepping closer when every instinct in our body is to pull back. And so we, we started speaking really honestly about mm -hmm. mental illness, about suicidality, about an, a kind of existential loneliness wow. that, that pulls us away from life. And we, we, we've spoken really bluntly over years now about what it means to create no stigma zones where we can actually say to each other, you know, I'm not well right now, where we can walk in through the same entryway, but come from the other direction and trust mm -hmm. that people will see us and say, you know, hey, what's going on with you? Tell me your story. And how can I hold you in this moment? And so the deepest prayer is in those moments of most acute suffering, when we feel furthest from community, that we that we know and that we trust that if we dare to 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 expose that we're in pain, that we will not be rejected and mm -hmm. ignored and sent away from community, but we will be embraced and loved mm -hmm. because we are seen as fellow images of God who are in a moment of incredible, immense heartache and pain mm -hmm. and desperately need to be the receivers of love. You know, I've actually, I've, I've been really struck that there are places like moments in our lives when we encounter that kind of holding community. Um, oh, uh, another way to put it might be a community of welcome, a community that is characterized by welcome at all times for all people. And I think I've been most struck by the way that the LGBTQ community, quite honestly, actually has created those kinds of welcoming holding communities um, that, in a way that's actually quite prophetic. And, you know, I realized this might feel like, uh, where are we going with this? Or like, how did we get here? But it's it's really not. I mean, I think, do you remember the, do you ever see that show Pose on, I think it's Netflix. And it's about like this whole subculture, LGBTQ subculture, queer subculture, where they go and it's like kids that are, that are basically thrown away by their parents and their, and their families and they find each other. And then they have a kind of like a, a den mother, a mother that kind of takes them in to her home. And then, so you basically have this house full, an apartment full, a community full of people who were the outcasts and mm -hmm. they love each other well. And the reason why I'm mentioning this, why I feel like it's actually apropos is that you, you live in LA, you live in the land of beautiful people. You live in the land of power. I mean, it is literally one of the three major power centers of the entire earth. And, and y'all know it too. LA knows that. I've lived there for 14 years. I know that. And so how hard has it been for you to cultivate a community that allows itself to see its outcastedness, to see mm. its queerness, to see its, its ability, its necessity to be welcomed and not just to be strong. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That can be hard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is a city that uh, that is that 
that functions on a, a very superficial level where yes. it's a city of it's a city of celebrity it's a city of extreme wealth um it's a city of real privilege in many ways mm-hmm. and it's a city of deep and profound brokenness yes. and all and all human beings yearn to be seen for who they really are mm-hmm to be seen as beautiful and striving and flawed mm. and searching all human beings, regardless of, you know, what they appear to be on social media or in film or in TV. And so what we've really s- striven to do in this community is build a space where people can just be human beings mm. where people can just be honest. So our, our opening words to one another in community mm-hmm. are not, you know, where do you work and what do you do and who are you connected to, but who are you and what brings you here? That's the way that we've built a community of both compassion and care and also a community of shared purpose. Another, another piece of ancient wisdom comes um, from the great sage Maimonides, great medieval teacher known as Rambam. And he writes that there are three different ways of being in relationship or being in friendship. One of them is functional and utilitarian. You need something from me. I need something from you. As soon as the utility ceases, the relationship ceases. We all know about relationships like that. Mm -hmm. The next is a relationship of deep concern and where we enjoy being together we care deeply for one another, um, we trust each other, and we worry for one another. And then the third is a relationship of shared purpose, where we together share a vision of what our community and what our world could look like when we work together. Mm. And I believe that what we need to strive to do at ICAR in our, you know, in our faith community, but I think that in many ways, this is the work of all faith communities and many other collectives is to stand at the intersection of those second two kinds of relationships, mm. relationships of shared concern and mutual care and compassion on one hand and relationships of shared purpose. So we're actually trying to build something together. And that is needed, whether you're in Los Angeles or, you know, you're or, or you're in, you know, where, wherever you are in the world, we all yearn to be cared for and loved and held with compassion and to be working with people who stand on the same side of history and share a vision of, of what's possible in our, in our broader collective. Walking Freedom Road from coast to coast and around the globe, this is the Freedom Road Podcast. Wow. Thank you so much for that. I mean, really, Sharon, um, that last piece is profound. And I think it's one of these, it's one of the pieces of this conversation that I'm going to carry with me again for like the next several years. (laughs) Cause I never, whenever we talk, I always hold on to these conversations literally for years. They kind of go around in my head, like really, truly. Right. So I have another question for you. So as, as we move through this Holy day season, our hearts are challenged to hold on, to hold both celebration and the grief of hostages still not come home, the grief of nearly 20,000 dead in Gaza. I mean, in Bethlehem, they've actually canceled the Christmas celebrations this year. Um, 
they said, we can't celebrate. Can you tell us about grieving and living? Yeah. I believe that if we're awake in the world, we are always holding some combination of sorrow and celebration Mm. of grief and and joy. Mm. Any particular Shabbat morning when I walk into Ikar and we begin our services, if I'm paying attention, there are people in that room whose hearts have been completely shattered Mm. and they're people who've just fallen in love. There are people who've buried loved ones who've died tragically. And there are people who just got pregnant after trying for 15 years, right? So, so I believe that our hearts are capacious enough to hold both of those experiences at once. Hmm. It's very difficult. It's very, very hard to do that. And I believe that we can, and we must because, because allowing ourselves to experience joy is how we get our fuel to sustain through periods of great trial and grief and hardship. And if we cut off our access to joy and to celebration, then we will be less equipped to actually be present to the heartache because you Mm. can't survive forever in a space that is entirely about grief. And this is why I mentioned earlier the house of mourning. When you walk into a house of mourning, you almost always hear laughter. Mm. There's a lot of crying, Mm. a lot of crying, Mm -hmm. but you almost always hear laughter Mm -hmm. because when we remember someone, even if they've died tragically, we remember also what was quirky and wonderful and unusual and hilarious about them. Mm -hmm. And this is why when we go to a a Jewish wedding, you hear the sound of shattered glass. Mm. At every wedding, a glass is broken under the chuppah, under the wedding canopy. Right to remind us that even in this moment of peak joy, this is my, my heart is full. I'm standing here with my beloved, surrounded by a community of people who want to honor this love. Right. And so why do we break a glass? Because the world is a difficult, painful, terrible, broken place. And even within this immediate circle of loved ones, there are people with broken, shattered hearts. And certainly as we expand the concentric circles beyond this one, there is so much pain. And to be a responsible human being in the world means not to shut down those news reports of all of those people who are suffering so tremendously right now, but to take it in and to allow our hearts to be broken Mm. and also to affirm that our hearts can also hold hope Mm. because love is also real and joy is actually a nutrient for our spirits. We need joy in order to survive in these times. And so I I share in the book a story about really, I mean, there's so many moments where I've been confronted with this, but one Mm. of them was when my beloved cousin was was on her deathbed Hmm. and she was young and she was vibrant and beautiful. And she experienced this, this terrible diagnosis and a very rapid decline. And she was literally at her last days and the whole family flew to Los Angeles because my son was becoming bar mitzvah. (laughs) And so it's my kid's bar mitzvah and it's my cousin's probably last couple of days or weeks of life. Wow. And, and, and one of my cousins, who's very wise, she's, we, as soon as we saw each other, we greet, the whole family greeted each other and everyone's crying and crying because we're heartbroken. 
because of this terrible imminent loss. Mm -hmm. And then one of my wise cousins says, okay, no more grieving. Now we focus on Levi and the bar mitzvah and we celebrate. And I was up all night, Lisa Sharon. I was thinking, is that right? Is that what we do? We shut off the grief for my cousin because we're focused on my son. That doesn't feel right. right. And I realized because it's not right, because, because we have to hold both. We can't, first of all, you can't shut out the grief unless you're really not human. You can't shut out the grief. The reality is that this human suffering is happening, whether it's my cousin or whether it's the children under the rubble or whether it's the families of the hostages, this grief is real. So I don't want to shut it out. I want to enter into the celebration with an awareness of the fragility and the precariousness of life because it makes me even more grateful that I can have this moment with Levi as he's achieving this, you know, this moment of bar mitzvah that he's worked so hard on. And I'm not abandoning the pain. I'm bringing the pain with me into the shared space of joy and pain. Wow. And that has been an incredible Torah, an incredible teaching for, for my whole community that we've invested in again and again and again, because the, the first time I remember it happened, there was a terrible tragic loss of a child in our community. Mm-hmm who died in a horrific accident. Mm. And the family came on Shabbat because they needed to say Mourner's Kaddish. They needed to say the Mourner's Prayer and they needed to be surrounded by love, but their four-year-old had just died. It was unbearable. And there was this reverberative trauma echoing through the whole community, but it was this other kid's bar mitzvah. And this kid worked so hard and we can't cancel the bar mitzvah for the sake of the tragedy. So we just held it all. And we've we've made a commitment to each other. We're going to continue to hold it all, to hold the celebration and to hold the sorrow all with one broken, beautiful heart, because that is what it means to be a human being alive in this world. Sister, um, if I was in LA, you would be my rabbi. I am so for real. Oh my gosh. Do you know, I mean, I literally just went through this myself and you're giving words. You're offering me words to be able to hold what we just went through. On Thanksgiving Day, we were supposed to have my cousin, my second cousin, who was the same age as my mom, um, come and spend Thanksgiving with us. She'd never done it before. Thanksgiving is her favorite, her favorite holiday, her favorite meal. And she went to sleep and never woke up that morning. And so on Thanksgiving Day, we're hosting this big family dinner. Oh. And 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 that my other family members who went to go pick her up found her having passed in her bed that oh, night. God. And so that day, we're holding the celebration of having right. the family together and the grief of having lost my cousin. Mm-hmm. And and I just remember thinking to myself, this is so weird. This is, I mean, weird was just the word. It was just such a weird day. But you know what it was? It was human. Yes. It yeah. was human. It's it's human and it's holy and it's holy and it's this, sacred. I mean, I'll there. The, I looked as I always do when I was first confronted with this challenge that you've experienced on Thanksgiving, and I'm so sorry for your loss. I hope that your cousin's memory is always a blessing, she and that is. you feel her presence reverberating in this world for the good. Yeah, for many years to come. I I was searching, searching to try to find a way to, what do we give dominance and prominence to when we're trying to hold both? And I turned to this, this ancient text about how the people 
um, survived after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem 2000 years ago. Right. Yeah. And everything that they, I mean, it, the, their whole lives were, were turned upside down. I mean, there was massive loss of life, hundreds of thousands or a million people they think were murdered and the temple was burned to the ground and everybody, almost everyone who survived was exiled with the exception of small community pockets of community that were able to stay. And the rabbis, they tell this, this story that people became ascetics. They said, okay, we're not, no Thanksgiving dinner. How can we, right? Oh, we won't wow. eat. So they said, wow. we won't eat meat. We won't eat meat and we won't drink wine. And so the rab, what the great sage of the time said, okay, you're, you're not going to eat, you're not going to eat meat because they used to have meat in the temple sacrifices. Okay. Well then you also shouldn't drink wine because they also had wine in the sacrifices. So the people said, fine, we won't drink wine either. So then he said, okay, but then you also really shouldn't eat bread because they brought bread as an offering to the temple. And so, you know, really no bread. And they said, okay, we'll just do water. And he said, listen, my children, you must grieve. You must grieve, but you also must live. And our work in the world is not mm. to live with reckless abandon where we forget the, the lives of your cousin and mine and the lives of all, all of the people who are suffering and whose lives hang in the balance right now. But instead, we remember them even as we dance, as we celebrate, as we feast, as we experience joy in this world, because that is the testament to our human connection to one another. Mm. Okay, so as we enter one of the, if not the most contentious election years in U.S. history, can you please tell us how we hold onto our capacity to wonder? Yeah, we just have, I'm deeply worried about the division right now that we're experiencing in, in, in this time. Yeah. Um, and I mentioned when I shared with you the ritual of the circling around the courtyard as our conversation began, that the person who's walking from left to right, when they're asked, what happened to you? What's your story? That they answer saying, I'm a mourner, mm -hmm. which I extrapolate throughout the book to mean I'm a brokenhearted person. I'm someone who's had some kind of loss. Mm -hmm. But the Mishnah actually gives two examples. And mm -hmm. the second example after the mourner is someone who is a minudet, it's called. The, it's an ancient category of punishment to somebody who's been ostracized from community, wow. either because of their ideas or their actions that have been deemed so harmful to the overall community that it's really not safe to have them in community. You can't do business with them. You can't learn with them. You can't be in school, you know, and you can't even be within six feet of them. Wow. But the, it's a kind of excommunication that was so very rare and very serious. Yeah. But in this ritual, the menudah, the ostracized, shows up at the temple. And not only do they show up in the same physical space, but they are walking like the mourners against the tide. And every person who comes towards them asks them, Malach, what happened to you? And they say, I've been ostracized from community. I'm separated from my own people right now. And they too are answered with a blessing. And the blessing is either may your community find a way to embrace you again, or may you find a way to repent from whatever you did that separated you from community so you can find your way. But what I'm so struck by is that the rabbis understood that there were times when either our ideas or our actions mm. put us at odds with each other in a way that we really believe that we can't even sit down together ever again. And the answer is to ask a question mm. and say, tell me, what has this been like for you? What is your story right now? Tell me about your pain. The rabbis are inviting us into wonder, inviting us into curiosity. 
about the other so that we can actually learn. It's a question. It's, we don't just say, may you one day understand the error of your ways. We say, tell me, what brings you here? What have the last two months been like for you? Mm. How is your heart in this moment? Mm. And I'm so struck by what it means in this, this culture mm-hmm. that suffers as ours does from a curiosity deficit where we so we have such little wonder about one another, but we have all these assumptions. You believe this and you believe that and you don't honor or value my life and you don't honor mine to actually ask. And sometimes when we ask, we'll get shut down and we'll make no progress with each other and we'll realize I'm actually safer at a distance from this person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it might make a little bit of a difference and sometimes it might make a big difference. And we actually begin to build real loving relationships with each other and learn that we can stand with one another in solidarity without undermining our own commitments and our own core values. And that's what I'm praying for in this mm. time. Mm. I'm praying that all of this brokenness, that all of the ruptures of the time that we're living in, in this post-2016 election reality, which changed America forever, and in the ruptures created on October 7th and afterwards, that we're able to find our way even to the people who we who we see walking in a different direction from us, even to people who have hurt us, who've hurt yeah. our hearts by things that they've said or posted or by our assumptions about the positions that we think they hold, mm-hmm. that we find the strength and the courage to hold curiosity about them and to ask mm. Malach, tell me, What's this been like for you? And how can I hold you during this time? And that what comes from that is the blessing of us finding our way toward one another once again. And I believe that this matters not only because my heart is broken and your heart is broken and all of this division is hurting our spirits, but because it's also gonna break our democracy. If we don't figure out how to find our way to each other, there's only one, fascism is what wins. Like, so just to be really clear, and Hannah Arendt wrote, so many years ago, she said that loneliness and isolation and social alienation are preconditions for tyranny. The Whoa. more isolated we feel from each other, the more likely it is that tyrannical fascistic forces come into our public space and take over that space because we have broken apart from one another. We who have shared values about dignity and justice and equity and equality and love in the public space. If we turn away from each other and can't find our way back to each other with curiosity and wonder, none of us win. Can I, can I, I want to offer a little bit even to make, to move this conversation that much further forward. Um, I was in um, Serbia, Croatia, and Bosnia in 20, in 2004, when you created Ikar, I was I was there. And I wasn't there for a long time. It was one month. But we were on a pilgrimage and we pilgrimaged really through Croatia, Bosnia, Serbia, the whole thing in order to understand how Shalom is broken. Mm. And one of the lessons that I got there, I never ever connected it to wonder or curiosity, yes, but never to wonder. But now through what you're just talking about, I understand the connection. But the lesson that I learned there was that wars begin through lack of humility. Mm. Lack of humility causes wars because what one side or even both sides do is they say, 
I know what your intention was. And this mm-hmm. is, and you did this in order to do this. And now I'm going to retaliate in this way. Or they say, I know that you did this when actually maybe I didn't do this. Maybe there's fake news out there. Maybe there's, maybe there's rumors that maybe, you know, but uh, so there's, there's lack of humility, mm. which is what actually causes this yarn ball that explodes and mm-hmm. wonder curiosity actually require humility mm-hmm. beneath it. Like mm-hmm. it has to be the, the, the foundation because you have to know that you don't know everything. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I, there's a story that I share in the final chapter of the book where I talk mm. about wonder mm-hmm. that comes from the Talmud, also ancient text. And it's a story about this wonderful man, this very strange man who had the power through his prayer to make it rain when mm. there was a drought. And um, and so there was a terrible drought and people are dying wow. and everybody's trying everything and they can't make it rain. And the rabbis say, okay, we have to go to Abichilkia, this guy who has this sacred power passed down through generations in his family. Wow. And they go and they see him. And the, the story chronicles all of these events that they have with this guy who is rude and callous and disrespectful and aggressive. He does so many behavior, like behavior after behavior after behavior. And then finally, he makes it rain. He prays and the miracle happens and it rains. And the rabbis should leave the delegation that went to see him. And they should just say, this guy is a terrible guy. He has a special power, but he's a terrible guy. But because they got what they wanted, it's raining. But instead of walking out, they turn to him and they say, before we go, some of your behavior has puzzled us. Can we ask you a few questions? And they ask him about one after the next, after the next. And it turns out that he has an explanation for every single thing that he did that seemed callous and rude and aggressive and irresponsible. Every single one of them, there was a story behind the story, which we would never have known as the reader and right. the rabbis didn't know. And and I, th- I feel that our whole lives hinge on that question. Yes. Some of your behavior has puzzled me. Can I ask you about it? Yes. Some of your behavior has hurt me. Can we be in conversation? I want to understand you more and I want you to understand me. So you're, I love your idea about humility. It's recognizing that we just might not understand what's driving you. And I, I yearn for deeper human understanding. Mm. And, and I just, I feel that this is so essential to our humanity. And don't we, when we feel we're being misunderstood, yearn for someone to say to us like, Hey, like, don't assume, just ask me. I'm happy to tell you who I am and how I came to these. Please ask me. And so what would it take for us to give that gift to someone else to say, Mm -hmm. help me understand more because some of your behavior confuses me. Tell me what is your story and how did you come from this to conclusion to that? And when we just stay at the table when we stay in that conversation and we're driven by an open-hearted curiosity while keeping ourselves safe, right? While right, recognizing that's right. <laughs> that we must be safe. Mm-hmm. Um, what might we learn about the other and about ourselves? Mm. Oh my gosh, it's so good. All right, so I have two last questions for you. And these are, I want you to dream, like really dream. And I want you to paint the dream. What are your dreams for Israel? My hope in the darkest days is drawn from 
Jewish Israelis and Palestinian citizens of Israel and Palestinians living in the West Bank and Gaza who are working together for a just and shared future, mm. who, who understand that there are millions of people living in a tiny sliver of land and none of them are going anywhere else. Millions of people who basically the rest of the world has said over the course of generations, like, you are not my problem. There's no other safe place in the world for Jews to go or for Palestinians to go. And so have said, we must see each other's dignity and humanity and learn how to live as neighbors. Mm -hmm. And whether what exact form that takes, I don't know. But I know that it's possible for us to live in harmony with one another. I know that there are more people who want that than want the alternative. Mm -hmm. And I, I really have seen one thing that's been very heartening in the last two months is that I have heard more people talk about a two-state solution and the possibility of peace in the last two months than in the last 10 years. Oh, gosh. And Yes. Yeah. And I think because it, it was seemed almost like th that time has passed. Mm -hmm. There's no way we'll go back there. And now I'm hearing people from all different backgrounds saying, we have got to figure this out. The time is now. And I know that we can figure it out. And so my dream is that we learn how to see one another as neighbors, because at the end of the day, what most people want is to put their kids to bed, knowing that they're safe and that their bellies are full so that they can wake up in the morning and go to school and learn. I mean, that is the most basic human need. And I believe that once we reattach to that shared humanity and that shared vision, um, that, there's, that there's nothing that we won't be able to do together. Now, I realize that you gave a shared vision, a shared dream for Israel and Palestine, but I want you now to kind of step into the shoes of the Palestinian, the shoes of the other, and Share what are your dreams for Palestine? I want Palestinians to have the same thing that I want Jews to have, which is self-determination, dignity, a future to look forward to, a sense of justice in this world. I feel whenever I speak with Palestinians who share their experience with me and they talk about their yearning for a home, when they talk about their pain of multi-generational trauma, mm. when they talk about their sense of abandonment, I always feel like there is a people in this world who are very well suited to empathize with you because we share so many of those basic experiences. Mm -hmm. And the world has set us up to be enemies with one another, but really our hearts should be aligned with one another. And I dream of that future for Palestinians I dream that for both, for Palestinians and for Jews, that there are places where we can experience freedom, security, safety, dignity, and peace. The conversations leaders have on the road to justice. This is the Freedom Road Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The Freedom Road podcast is recorded in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, or wherever our guests lay their heads that night. This episode was engineered and edited by and produced by Corey Nathan of Scan Media. Freedom Road podcast is executive produced by Freedom Road LLC. We consult, coach, train, and design experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, 
and lead to common action. You can find out more about us on our website at freedomroad.us. Now stay in the know by signing up for our updates, which are on Substack. Somebody say Substack. That's where you can find us at Freedom Road on Substack. And we promise that we will not flood your inbox. You'll get maybe two, two uh, major like newsletters from us um, in, the, in the course of the month. And we invite you to listen again. Join the conversation on Freedom Road. And if you are a patron on Patreon or a subscriber on Substack, you get an extra little treat. We have for you a very special treat, a behind the scenes conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse. So catch you over there. Mm-hmm.